episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love chatting with interesting people, finding out about their story, finding out how they developed their mindset for performance, and all the steps along the way that led them to where they are today. So I love chatting with coaches, athletes, CEOs, agents. We've talked to some actors, some musicians, really anyone who is in the performance space to find out about their story and find out how that story has impacted their mindset for performance. So today we go beyond the surface with Dave Smith. Dave is the head men's hockey coach at RPI, and he actually just took that job after spending over a decade at Canisius University, where he helped build that program to a top 25 ranking in NCAA hockey. Dave also played professionally, uh, and he will really get into his journey, and he bounced around all over the country um, playing hockey and pursuing his passion and pursuing something that he loved. He also had a successful career at Ohio State University. So as I think you will hear, Dave's a hockey guy. He's passionate about the game. He loves the game. Uh, He loves teaching young men, which is part of the reason he ended up at the NCAA level coaching. And Dave and I could have talked hockey all day. So we really enjoyed talking about leadership, talking about culture, talking about mindset. And actually that culture piece is something we talked even more about after we had our conversation over the microphone. So Dave, as, as we were walking away, said, hey, you know, one of the things I didn't really talk about is culture and how, he, how much he values culture and the culture that he established at Canisius and what he's trying to build in RPI. So Dave is somebody who's very self-aware. He's somebody who uh, at times would even be self-deprecating, but he is somebody who realizes who he is, where he's been, and where he wants to go. So he has great clarity around his vision and what he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish and what his values are. I think he, he really values connection. He really values the idea of developing relationships with the players that he coaches. So I think he's really developed a great sense of values, morals, principles, uh, philosophy when it comes to the game and, and how he looks at himself as a coach. And as you'll hear also, we'll talk about how he looked at the game as a player. So you're going to get both player and coach perspective. I think you'll find that useful. As we go beyond the surface with Dave, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. So without further ado, I present to you Coach Dave Smith. Dave, thanks so much for joining us or joining me uh, on the podcast. Uh, just let's get started. Tell us about your, your upbringing. You grew up in, in Canada. Uh, what was life like for you as a, a little pipsqueak and uh, what was your family like and all that good stuff? Wow, that, I mean, that's a, such, a, such a short question with such a long answer. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I love this part of the story. I'm so proud of my hometown. I grew up in a little wee place called Arthur, Ontario. So uh, to, to start small and to get, to get a little bigger, I'm halfway between a town called Owen Sound and Guelph. I'm two and a half hours northwest of, of Toronto. It's a very small farming community. I didn't grow up on a farm. My father was an attorney. My mother was a legal secretary. Um, I had five guys my age on my hockey team, four guys a year older, four guys a year younger. So our teams changed every year. Rink in the backyard. The community center had an arena. It was two blocks away. Sports all day, every day. Um, Again, it's a tough, hardworking town that uh, um, really takes care of its own. And I'm proud of it. I talk about it every chance I get. So I'm really happy to answer that as a, as a first question. I mean, from there. Uh, Time out. Uh, uh, siblings? I have one brother. I have one brother who's three years older who stayed in that area as an Ontario provincial policeman. Um, worked 30 years, just recently retired. And so I'm seeing pond hockey. I'm seeing, yeah. you know, you guys are outdoors, just, you know, finding neighbors, whoever wants to play. Uh, were there other sports or was hockey king in, in the town? No, we grew up actually playing fast pitch softball um, mm. and, and hockey was king in the winter and, and softball is a huge lacrosse town. We didn't have enough people for a football or a soccer team. Um, but uh, in my high school, I mean, I played on the tennis team. I played on the badminton team. I wrestled. Um, we didn't have ping pong against other schools, but man, we did a lot. And uh, it was it was sports all the time. And um, you know, my, my father, as an attorney, was a huge sports fan. Now, he had polio before mm. the vaccine um, was, was, I don't know if it was even invented, right? But he had polio. Um, he died about six, six years ago, for, you know, complications from polio, but a massive sports fan. Taught me how to throw a curveball, 
Um, taught me about the spin, how to, how to, so I grew up as a pitcher in fastball, taught me how to spin the ball, taught me how to hit, all from his chair. And uh, read every day and then watched sports all the time. So that's, that was our existence, uh, my brother and I. My brother was into a lot of the same sports, but he was also into hunting and fishing and, and race, race cars. All kinds of stuff. Everything. What else do you do? Uh, academics? It was the round. <laughs> Not a focus. No, I mean, a lot of my friends, uh, Brian, they're still there. They work on the farm and they work in, the, in, in one of the communities nearby uh, in doing something. Um, you know, a little bigger factories now. Toyota's got a plant about 45 minutes away and a few work there. But it was all sports all the time. And our teachers were our coaches, um, not only in the community, but at the school. How many people in a graduating class? So we have grade 13. Okay. And, and I, I often rephrase that question, reorder that question. I, I would rather tell you that I graduated 11th in my class. Yeah, so you're just not going to give us well, the answer of grade, out of what? Grade 13, we had 16 people in my, <laughs> oh my. In my 13th grade class. We had uh, 30, I think low 30s in our um, grade 12 graduating class. And But dad's a lawyer, so I'm imagining that dad, you know, there's some educational background yeah. there. Um, what did you do when you graduate grade 13? <laughs> so this is a little snapshot into the hockey world, right? I, I, I went to grade 14. Right. So I could keep playing junior hockey. Right. Um, my father put himself through Western with his brother through law school in a wheelchair. And uh, so education was important. Along that path of junior hockey, I wanted to play major junior, which would have uh, eliminated my eligibility for college. And, and it was the only real time my father said no. You're not going to uh, play major junior. At the why? Time. Well, at the time, I thought it was a mistake. Now the why is simple. He wanted me to get a degree, and I was 5'9", 145 pounds. Um, get was, a little bigger. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bigger now um, in a lot of directions, but uh, he had that, that vision. Um, there were some complications in junior hockey that the uh, team I was on didn't promote. They thought it, it's a big deal to come down to the States. Again, this was uh, mid-80s. I was on a team that didn't think you should go to the States for education. So I changed teams, and I found out again years later my father helped finance a trade, which doesn't sound like a trade, but uh, it, it's simple math. And I went to a team that had a strong history of sending hockey players to U.S. college, and then I went to Ohio State. One more, I want to just stay back in childhood. Uh, were there kids coming out of your area that were going on to juniors and playing hockey? Was that a thing, or were you an exception? <laughs> the people there, I, I, and I hope that they find a way to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> I was an exception in a bunch of ways. Um, there was one player um, who actually, uh, his father wasn't in the picture, and my dad was a mentor to him. He was three years older than me. Um, my brother's age, and uh, he went to Miami of Ohio and played hockey on a scholarship there. And the first hockey game I saw was uh, Miami played the University of Toronto at Varsity Stadium. Uh, I don't know if I was maybe 12, 13, 14, and we had taken uh, John O'Connor's his name. He was the first one uh, to go to, to college hockey from our town, and there's been a couple, but uh, definitely under six uh, um, all, all time, I think, still. And you said you guys were big sports fans. Were the Maple Leafs were they the... King. Maple Leafs are king. There's no... Growing up. There's nothing else. Wednesday and Saturday, I mean, uh, in our area, it's Toronto, Toronto, Toronto. It's changed now with the internet and media, but uh, at that time, Wednesday night, CHCH TV, and uh, Saturday night, CBC. Awesome. And what values or morals were passed down to you from mom and dad? Do you know, at the time, none. Yeah. That's what you think as a kid. Like, as, as a kid, you think... Uh, You've got it all figured out, and your parents are, are on a different planet. And, and slowly but surely, and, and I, I, I never got in a lot of trouble as a kid, but a lot of skirmishes, we'll call them, a lot of opportunities for bigger trouble if I was in a bigger city. Again, we're in a small town. If a neighborhood town comes over, you deal with it. And uh, so my, my father and mother worked hard, and family was important. Um, I've learned later the values that they passed along, the work ethic and, and family and integrity. Uh, with my dad uh, being a, an attorney, integrity was, was critical, commitment. 
Um, but I didn't figure that out till till later. Again, that that's the transition for me. I felt as though I was a big fish in a small pond in Arthur. Didn't know it at the time, but acted like it. So going again, going away to junior, I continued that mindset. Um, Did that help or hurt you when you went away? Well, it, it, it was probably the biggest single best change in my life other than getting married and having kids. Let me back up. Let me rephrase that question. Did it help or hurt you to think of yourself as a big fish, small Well, I didn't think of it that way. I didn't know any better. I was just naive and ignorant right. to the fact. So, again, wherever you go, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll fight our way out of anything. and Confidence, swagger. Arrogance. Again, arrogance. looking back, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so going to Ohio State where... And I keep jumping ahead because it was such a transformational moment. Didn't know it at the time. I, I wore Michigan shorts to Ohio State. <laughs> my roommate had to call me out. I didn't know. There was more people in my first class at Michigan. It's like Montreal Canadian shorts right. in, in your town probably right. went over really well, I'm sure. Yeah, there was more kids in my first class at Ohio State than, than in my entire hometown. And it was the best thing. It was the best thing for me because it really opened my eyes and I... I went ineligible. I mean, the story's crazy. I went ineligible and had to find my own way because, again, at that time, nobody's calling home and nobody's, you know, nobody's there to help you. It's sink or swim. And at that moment, I had to, I had to swim. The other thing I just wanted to pull on before we go into more Ohio State is that idea of community. Um, is that something that you did feel when you were younger? You, you sort of knew your neighbors. You know everybody in the town. Did you value that when you were in it, or is that something you value now? Because you started this conversation by saying, like, oh, I had this great childhood. Was there an appreciation for that when you were in it, or is it more uh, retroactively? Yeah, it's a, it's a retroactive feeling that I, I wish that I would have appreciated it more then. Um, again, we had a 30-year high school reunion recently, and everybody went. That's crazy. Everybody went. And it was as if time stood still, but we began to appreciate each other. And uh, I, I loved it, but I didn't know it at the time. Sure. You were on to bigger, better things, trying to, trying to go forward. Uh, th- those are phrases that are used. Sure. Um, never have I really used them that I was on to bigger and better. Again, growing up in a little town, often just dealt with the next step. Got it. Again, I think Dad helped me along the way there. My mom helped me along the way. I, I did it. Um, but the next step was, you know, grade nine, grade ten. You just kept going junior hockey, and uh, at the time, I look back now, and I was living the dream. That's what we say about the junior hockey players that are just riding it out and not really on a path anywhere. Sure. And uh, I was fortunate again. I was fortunate to, to to take that next step in college, and it did change me. So you shift gears. You're ineligible freshman year. What changes? What shifts? Walk me through that process. Two things happened. I, I got a grade changed. Uh, teacher allowed me to do a little extra work. I called him three times a day for 22 straight days till we connected. Wow. I, I, that, that period of time, I, I realized I was on a mission to not be embarrassed. Mm. And I was never going to be embarrassed again. I, I did, he did allow me to do extra work. Got Wait, time out. Is that the first time in your life you felt embarrassment? Um, maybe as a, it, it might be one of them. I, mean, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question, but it might be. The reason I ask that question is I really believe that fear of embarrassment is one of the biggest fears we have as humans. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's a new topic for me to discuss, but because of that time period, um, it, it might be the first time that I was going to go home and I couldn't play hockey because of uh, people might think I was stupid. I flunked out, um, maybe lose an opportunity with a scholarship. And I didn't realize at the time maybe what my motivation was, but that fear of embarrassment is powerful. And if we could just riff on that for a minute, because I think it's relevant. Uh, the same place where emotional pain lies in the brain is the same place where physical pain lies. So our brain doesn't differentiate physical pain and emotional pain. Um, so that's why if, you, if, there was a, if there's a survey done, and there have been surveys done on this, on what do people fear most the most answers that are given are public speaking. Uh, why are people afraid to publicly speak? They don't want to embarrass themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, if you can fight the fear of embarrassment as a team uh, or as an individual and realize that your DNA is going to keep you from taking the risk 
of being embarrassed and you can say, no, I don't want to be embarrassed. Yeah. That can be a massive motivator. And you went through that your freshman year. It's like, I do not want to embarrass myself. I'm going to call this person 22 times. So now we're persevering. Now we're showing a little grit. Yeah. Now we're showing some determination to get something, but it's, it's being brought out in some ways by a, a fear of embarrassment, which is fascinating. And at the time, it, there was nothing that was going to stop me. I was on a mission. Didn't know it. Didn't know how you just explained it, the science behind it. Um, but I, the last day, I made one more call. On December 22nd, I was on my way back home, and he answered the phone. Wow. And I went over there, and, and again, it, it, we, we got it done. Um, you know, that, that first year, I was able to come back and play. And then I broke my leg. <laughs> and I think that's karma. I really do. Right? I, but I, I didn't get embarrassed that I couldn't play. I scored a goal in overtime. Broke my leg, could save face, probably still served a similar penalty. I wasn't able to play. And then I went Dean's List and for a few semesters. And um, those two things, I think, were, were attached. First injury? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. And any memories as far as going through that surgery? Or you didn't have surgery. You had uh, cast or whatever it might yeah, have been. Yeah, three-month cast. And then I still share with our players now, uh, obviously, a different perspective, but I lost connection with the team. Mm. Um, I didn't feel a part of it. wasn't coming around. So now, as a coach, I make sure that any injury – I was in a cast for three months. Um, the last month of it, I had a, a real flexible cast. I was able to at least play hoops on the, on the yard with the cast on. Um, but uh, – those are, those are moments I still recall and share with the players. Massive experience now. <laughs> Worthwhile experience for you as a coach because now you can have not just empathy, you can have sympathy because you went through that uh, as a player. You know, and this is great to do. This is great. This is, I don't know if this is healing or what we call this for me, but I don't often share this story, these stories, because very few people have been on that journey with me from childhood all the way through. My parents have, but again, we put our parents in a different place. I met my wife after college. My childhood friends came down to Ohio State to party. So I don't always put these, uh, put these pieces of the puzzle in order like we've done today. And now to reflect upon them as a coach, all, all opportunities to fall on my face, all opportunities to, to be doing something different. I had, a, I had a lot of very positive accidental landings. Well, we all have a journey, we all have a story, and along that story, there are crossroads. And you go down path one, or you go down path two, and the story changes. And I think for college kids who, look, I think most kids, up until they get to college, their story is being written by other people. Um, so their parents, their coaches, their teachers, they're deciding a lot of their story. I think one of the beauties of the people that you work with, and I'm fortunate, I get to work with three levels and three different sandboxes, so high school, college, and pros. Uh, I love working with college kids because they're writing new chapters in their story, and they're writing it. So yes, that, person, that teacher had to pick up the phone on the 22nd or 23rd call, but you still were making the calls. Um, yes, you, know, you broke your leg, but you had to go through that and learn what it was like to be separated and then take something away from that. So I always say like, it's not about going through adversity because everyone says, oh, you just need to go through some adversity. No, you don't need to go through adversity. You just need to learn from the adversity. <laughs> Those are two separate things. I know a lot of people have gone through adversity and not learned a thing. Um, and so the learning piece is the key. And um, you know, I think reflecting on our journey, reflecting on our story, now it makes logical sense for how we see the world because our story has shaped it and that's developed our mindset. So now your ability to connect with a kid who tears his ACL or breaks his leg or you know, uh, dislocates their shoulder, to be able to connect with them is massive. To the kid who's ineligible for his first semester because he is partying and he's not focused or he just doesn't know how to handle college. You can pull him into your office and say, without judgment, here's my story. Here's what, I've, here's what I did. Um, and they still may go down a different path. That's their choice. That's their, that's their decision. Um, but our story, I mean, you're right. We often don't take the time to reflect on our story. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't think we give young people enough opportunity to learn from adversity. I mean, there's always, 
the safety net is higher now. The fall is, is shorter and uh, doesn't hurt as much. There's never an embarrassment because there's always another opportunity right around the corner, um, whether it be another team, another uh, and somebody else telling them that it's okay. Um, and I think that's uh, not a problem with today. It's, it's just one of the challenges that adversity, those, if those lessons aren't talked about early, they're not learned the same way. And I, I would say the flip of that is also we become more judgmental as a society. <laughs> so we are... We recruit, right? That's recruiting. Right. I mean, there, there's decisions that these young people are making and we're judging it. And in, in the stroke of a pen, watching a game or in a conversation, it's over for a kid sometimes. That piece to me... So, yes, there's transferring. There's all these, you know, uh, these entitlement. And, like, we can own that. But the other piece of it is is the, ju- the judgment. And uh, we often forget that they're still 18 and, like, or they're 16 or whatever age they might be. And, like, I go back to some of the things I did when I was that age, and I think back and I'm like, man, if someone had a video camera and you know, had that on their phone, what would that look like? And these kids live in a society now that is very judgmental. Um, even if it's Facebook likes, that's a judgment. Um, even if it's a Twitter follow, that's a judgment. Even if it's an Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is, we do, we, we tend to judge. And um, without rather, without, we evaluate without being descriptive. And the descriptions are the important part. The evaluations, you know, they tend to be broad, um, so it's a very it's a very fast it's a much faster world yeah right the the the, not, the wheels of communication are still slow to turn but they're going so fast now compared to what it used to be if i mean if those things would have happened to me at ohio state it would have been you know years before people knew the story um now when the grades come out it's national news if you if you were a good player if i had been a, a great player embarrassment shame yeah. all that good stuff bad stuff um, okay, so freshman year, you, you do face some things. You make some choices. Yeah. Uh, walk me through sophomore, junior, senior year, the rest of your time at Ohio Yeah, State. so uh, freshman year, I had a portion of my scholarship taken away just because I had removed myself from the team or at least the connection with the team and had to pay for that working over the summer. But at that, at that era, that wasn't, wasn't a big deal. Mom and dad's reaction to that was? I didn't tell them. They didn't even know? No, not that I know of. I'm going to handle it. Yeah, unless they listen to this, and my dad won't hear it, but <laughs> yeah. my, my mom, maybe she was just skipping <laughs> Sorry, mom. Um, yeah, I just I, I went down and took my money down. And, and, and What was your up. job? Well, at that time, I was uh, a framer. We framed hotels, and, and we built barns. Awesome. Yeah, pole barns, and, you know, I think, I mean, I say barns like, uh, I don't even know how to describe a barn. <laughs> to, 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 you you know you're guys. using your hand and building shit and building stuff. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a carpenter. There's a difference. I, I helped build stuff, but yeah. it was uh, it was all day every day. And uh, again, I think that stuff helped helped form me as well. But sophomore year, I had a real good year. What position did you play? I was a centerman. Okay. Yeah, and every coach wanted to put me on the wing because I didn't skate well enough, but I played hard so I could play down below the dots in both ends and. Sophomore year, I had a real good year, uh, I think 19 goals, junior year, again, I think maybe I thought I'd figured it out, wasn't as good, and then I had an excellent, I was named as a captain as a junior, didn't have a great year. Did that matter to you at the time? Uh, it did, it did, and uh, again, that's another lesson I pass along to a lot of our players now, is that I wasn't ready to be the captain. I was, you know, a different era where, where coaches and players, they want that hard, and not afraid to fight somebody in practice, and compete all the time that was me uh, but not ready to be the captain I mean what I've learned from that is is leadership now is communication leadership is personal I didn't have those two traits at that time so I wasn't ready to be the captain lead by toughness and example was that sort of yeah lead by example to me it it, it doesn't exist anymore Mm. I mean you 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 can lead by example but that doesn't make you a leader Mm. Um, you need to lead by communication and talking with people and to walk in the room and who needs a pat in the back and who needs a kick in the butt and who just needs who do you listen to I wasn't a listener I'm still not as good a listener as I would like to be but at that time as a junior in college I just lead by example was all I knew do you think people can get better at at being a listener oh 100% you just have to learn it's one of the most teachable qualities (laughs) Who teaches it? I, 
I think it starts, I'll tell you a quick story about myself. I'll talk about myself rather than listen. And <laughs> we'll, we'll challenge you. And I'll listen. We'll, yeah, we'll challenge, challenge your listening. It. When I was in grad school, they used to ask us to write down one thing that we want to improve on um, when we're in grad school. What's in that class? Like, what's the one thing you want to improve on during the quarter or the semester or whatever it was? And I would write, become a better listener. Because I knew if I was going to get into my profession that I'm in now, there had to be a version of listening. And I am deaf in my left ear, so I can't hear in my left ear. So my whole life, I've used my eyes more than my ears. Um, and so I'm very much someone who uses eyes. I notice things with my eyes. I'm perceptive like that. But I don't think I, I sometimes don't listen well because I assume things based on my eyes. So I would write down, I remember the first class, become a better listener. And then at the end of the class, they'll say, all right, how'd you do on it? I'm like, oh, I think I got better. I think I got better. The next class, what do you want to get better at? Become a better listener. <laughs> the whole time, every class, they gave us feedback at the end when we were graduating. And one of the things I got was, Brian's a really good listener. <laughs> and uh, my wife would completely disagree with that assessment. But I think it's one of the things that we, if we focus on, we absolutely can improve. I had a conversation with, uh, uh, with, with, with a group that we use, Coaching to Connect. Um, mm-hmm. Gordon Mark were friends of mine, and we were having a conversation about listening. And, and I've shared that so many times with whether it be coaches, peers, friends, that uh, I had the habit and the tendency to hijack a conversation. So you would say to me, hey, I went to that high school. Hey, I, I went to high school. I mean, I, you know, when I was in high school, I would do that. So I actually never really listened. And, and now through, again, professional development as a coach, somebody says, I went to high school. Where did you go to high school? You know, and it really, it's helped in recruiting, which has helped us be better team, but it's helped me be a better human, a better dad, a better husband. And again, I think my daughters and, and my wife might evaluate it different, but they also know that I'm trying. And there's a difference between bookmarking when you're listening so like I just bookmarked a couple things that you said, and, but I'm still trying to stay in the moment. Yeah. But I bookmarked like I, the first part of what you were able to do before. It's like, oh, I went to high school. That is connecting with somebody. Yeah. It's still it's it's still bringing them in. So you probably were a likable guy. People enjoyed being around you because you weren't. There wasn't dead space. Like you were able to still connect with them. But the next level was to stay intentively listening on them and then finding out uh, from them, it's like, oh, where did you go to high school? Like you said, that's a second level of of listening. Um, And and then the third thing that I bookmarked as you were talking was, and you said, and then it helps me in recruiting. I I was thinking like I started off in sales and sales was Mm -hmm. all about just constantly asking questions, gathering information. So then when it was time to talk, you had, you had the goods, yeah, yeah. and you could tell them what they wanted to hear because it doesn't matter what you want to hear. It matters what they want to hear. Well, listening is, is, is about you, and talking is about me. And, yeah. and I think when I started in recruiting, and it took a long time to learn, that they didn't care about me. Mm-hmm. They wanted to know what was in it for them, and, and, we needed to, and I made a better connection, and listening is a powerful tool. I had a boss tell me once, treat others how they want to be treated, not how you want to be treated. And I was in sales and it changed my perspective completely because I was always like, well, this is how I would want to be treated. Well, that may be completely irrelevant to who they are, what they're looking for. Um, So when I started realizing that I got better, it's still something I, I think it's a constant battle because I think I have things to say, but at times it's more worthwhile for me to hear what you have to say. So with that in mind, um, (laughs) so junior year to senior year, you, it sounds like you become better as a leader. Um, so you go from, I'm going to be tough, I'm going to lead by example or however you want to phrase it. Uh, but senior year, it sounds like you became a captain. Uh, what changed, what shifted for you from junior to senior year? Well, I stopped trying to be a captain. Mm. I just said, I'm just, I'm just going to be me. Authenticity. Again, looking back, yes. At the moment, I just, all right, I'm just going to be me and, and see what happens. I was a better me before at least statistically. Did someone guide you on that or was that just a decision you made on your own? No. I mean, again, at that time and the people that have known me for this entire story, you know, they know that uh, I had a lot of the answers and maybe all of them. Most people that get into coaching, I ask them, what would it have been like to coach yourself? 
what would it have been like for you to coach you as a, let's call it junior at Ohio State? Well, I crave it now. I crave it because I was stubborn. And then I'm also, I think, uh, I'll say strong enough now. I, I want that. I want a challenge. I want to try and get that guy, but I want him to believe in who he is. So I, I was a defensive player who wanted to score. Mm. And now if I tell a young man he's a defensive player, he forgets how to score. He doesn't stay stubborn. So I would love to recruit me the way I think now. I wouldn't I would have crossed me off the list based on some of the things that nobody knew at that time. But um, I would love a stubborn athlete that believes they can do it all. And then I nobody ever told me I couldn't, so I just kept trying. So senior year you start to just be you and do that really well, um, and and you just bring that out of yourself. Yep. Had, had a, again, statistics were so much a measure of our success at that time. But I took a step back and said, I'm just going to play. And um, so much of it is a retroactive learning where I now look, and we had a freshman on our line who was rookie of the year who signed with the Vancouver Canucks, Brian Loney. Um, had a, a former teammate, Ron White, who had 30 goals, and then I took pride in that at the time. And I, I remember a, a moment we had an empty net, and Brian was going for his 20th goal. It was late in the year, and I passed up an empty net to give it to him. Like, that's not who I was up until those moments. But it was about, at that moment, I was like, i gotta, I got to help him because that's pretty cool for a line to have three 20-goal scores. One of them was a 30-goal score. But You're, you were becoming a servant. Uh, I still have trouble admitting that uh, that's important to me. Um, but at that time, I started to recognize that uh, without knowing it, the success was going to come through others, not through me. Interesting. So senior year, you your team has success? Team didn't have great success. Okay. We, we made the playoffs, um, but uh, we, we just we didn't have a lot of team success. And what were you studying at Ohio State? I was a journalism major, public relations. Okay. So at senior year, any thought to what you want to do when you graduate? Absolutely. I wanted to run my own hockey program, and I thought that I'd have to learn to deal with the media. And go. some friends had been in journalism and some other athletes. And um, I mean, Kirk Herbstreet, uh, you know, from ESPN now was, was a classmate. We weren't, we weren't friends. Um, we weren't enemies. I don't want to make it sound like we were enemies. But uh, we were in the same major, and I thought that was uh, something that could help me in the future. So you graduate, and what's next for you? So I, I had an agent um, who's in the news now. My first agent was George McPhee, yep. who's the GM of the Las Vegas, uh, the Knights. And he, I, was, I had such a great year, he couldn't get me a tryout anywhere. Um, I changed agents. I got a tryout. Uh, the late Tim Taylor, the former Yale coach, had seen me play once and uh, got me a tryout in Fort Wayne in the International League. So I played, uh, I played two years there. I got sent down a little bit to Dayton. Um, you know, you fight your way back up in that in that era. That was uh, 1992. So the idea now is I want to have my own hockey academy or program, um, but I'm going to try to make it as far as I can professionally. Yeah, I, uh, same thing. I didn't know the history and tradition of the Fort Wayne comments. It was just, uh, I had to look it up on a map at that time, open up the atlas and say, where am I going to training camp? I didn't know anything. You get there and they've got a, a, a storied history and traditions that is terrific. I just was playing. At that time, I said, I guess I could play pro hockey, and I got a paycheck, and it didn't matter. I mean, my first paycheck, I brought over, bought a winter coat and the biggest speakers I could find, um, and that's what it was about. And then, you know, I went back to Ohio State after my first year pro, and we won a championship my first year pro, and I, and I, and I played all the way through and had an important role. Um, I went back to Ohio State, and I was going to stay there for a week. And I, I remember I woke up at four in the morning on like day two and said, this is over. I'm done. And I haven't really been back since. Um, I've been back a couple of times for uh, uh, different events or different games, but never back in the same mode. So um, I went, I, I left from there and didn't know it at the time, but shortly thereafter met my wife. How did you know it was done? Well, when you wake up at four in the morning, it was just somebody, something was telling me. I mean, it was... Uh, Partly hungover, partly uh, tired, partly just, what am I doing here? This isn't my story anymore. This is their story. And when you say this is done, you connected that with hockey? No, it just it, it wasn't my place. Okay. Ohio State wasn't my place anymore. And uh, I, I was doing something else. We had just won a championship. I thought I was maybe there to celebrate it with them, and I, I wasn't. Um, they didn't 
they didn't care after, hey, congratulations and move on. And again, I just woke up and packed my car and left. And where'd you go? Went back to Guelph, Ontario, moved in uh, for the summer with a buddy, ready to work again. Sorry, I, I skipped over an important piece. You met your wife. So when I moved back to Guelph, okay. she was renting a room from a, a hockey guy uh, doing her master's uh, in philosophy of biology at the University of Guelph, and we were roommates. And just so I'm clear on the hockey sort of, did it lose its luster, the passion, the purpose? What was... No. Never. No. You so had that bug. Yeah. That bug was there. Love it. But it was like, I just need to go in a different direction. Find yeah, a different I mean, that way. was, uh, that was, I was there to party. I was there to have fun and uh, they still had fun after that, but it just, it wasn't, it wasn't my crowd anymore. Yeah. And college hockey was different for you. Junior was different. It was, it was different type of, it was different. Well, pro hockey, if you don't perform, you get cut. Right. And uh, I did get sent down that first year from Fort Wayne to Dayton and I didn't like it. And I couldn't wait to get back up. And when I got back up, I, again, retroactively said, I'm never going to get cut again. Now, a couple of years later, I did get cut from the New York Rangers. But that's, I think, a little bit different story. I understood that one a little better. Okay, so we'll get to that point. Take me, connect the dots to the New York Rangers. Well, so I, with my first year pro, we win a championship. My second year pro, um, we lost in the finals. I had a, a little bit bigger role. Again, I wasn't the superstar on a team, but... Uh, an important important role player um, after that second year I signed with New York I had uh, um, I would like to call it a bidding war but it wasn't uh, it wasn't much of a war there was three teams I ended up signing with New York uh, we got married uh, after a year with 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 my wife or, and where was she from originally so she's from Chatham Ontario well she's from she was born in Perry Sound her father Gary Savern played 11 years in the National Hockey League so she's the daughter of a hockey player and she's the, uh, the daughter of a hockey player's wife, Nancy. And, and uh, I don't know, again, what the attraction was to another hockey player, but I don't know if it was in her story either. But So we got married after a year and signed with the Rangers and, and went to camp uh, there the year after they won the Stanley Cup, which was, which was pretty interesting. What happens there? Go to camp, get, get cut, sent to Binghamton, and just keep playing. Yeah. At that time, just keep playing. And... Um, you know, different things pop in my mind. I mean, I, at one time I had a good game that was on TV. It was during a lockout, and my buddies had seen it because the first time it was on, I don't know if it was ESPN at the time, and that was neat. And then shortly thereafter, I got sat out because one of their draft picks came in. You know, some of those things um, you remember. But we played, and we had a great team and a close close group. And But uh, it was a younger league and I had been in, that was the American League. I had been in the International League, which we had flown to a lot of places. It was an older league. And I was starting to identify maybe as a little bit, uh, a little bit older and wanted to get back to the uh, International League. So after Binghamton, I signed with Detroit. I want to go back to the Rangers real quick. You're there. You're in camp with them. Nerves, anxiety, excitement. <laughs> Again, the motivation of fear. Um, I was out of shape. I didn't sign with them until... Well, mid-August and September was camp and, and Matthias Nordstrom, the, the future captain of the LA Kings, hammered me so hard. I mean, it knocked the wind out of me for a day and uh, I, I wasn't prepared. I mean, I, there was no way I was going to make the team. I didn't know it. Um, and still naive, I think, you know, you're on the ice with Mike Richter and Zuboff and, and those guys. Uh, I was a fan, but you're competing against them. And, you know, I remember a little stick swinging incident with Eddie Olchuk and not really seeing a difference between that guy who played maybe a thousand games and had his name on the cup and me who was trying to make the team. So just really my story, if I had to put it in one word, is about compete. I just went there and competed, but I wasn't prepared. Any regret? Uh, no, I, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't talk about regret. I think regret is athletically. No. I mean, I did what I thought I had to do. And now I look back, it wasn't enough, but I don't regret what I did. Were you always competitive? Once you put on the skates, you laced them up, that part, was that always there for you or is that something you had to create? I drove here with my daughter from Albany today and we got competitive over the sunroof and she said to me, Dad, like, it's just the sunroof and I, I, I'm competitive with everything. Is she like that? Well, she doesn't think she is, but uh, she is competitive. She's much more aware at her age. She's 20 and wants to get into coaching. She's a psychology major 
and she's so much more aware than I was at that age. So she's competitive, but she's more aware of the people. Yeah, awareness. So awareness is an amazing thing because I really think college kids, are, that's where they gain awareness a lot of times when they go off to college. There's no mom, there's no dad, there's no coach, there's no teachers. It's yeah. like, oh, I, I decide if I go to class or not. I decide if I go to this party. I decide you start making decisions and you start to build awareness. I think that's one of the beauties of working with college college kids. Um, but the competitiveness, do you think that's something that you're born with? Is it something that you're brought up with? Is it something that you can cultivate? Um, where? What do you think about competitiveness? I, I think you're born with it. Yeah. I do. I, there's so many things I, I, I believe you can teach, but when you throw a ball down there, it's, if it's two guys and they come out when somebody has the ball, you can't teach that. Now, I think it can be improved. I think it can be um, something you're made more aware of. We talked about you know mental visions and, and imagery and, and how to flip a switch to be more competitive. But when, when it's stressful, you're going to be what's at your core. Is that something you did when you were playing visualization? Any mental skills that you utilized to get yourself to that place? Or I tried you know? it. I tried it. I used to write things down. I, at that, that time, the uh, mental imagery, and it was a, about creating that picture, and I couldn't do it. So I went through a phase where I wrote everything down, you know, win the face up, get pucks out of the blue line, and it helped me understand my game. I don't know if it helped me play better. Um, now, I, I, again, for me, I do it a little bit differently and I've read more books, talked to more people, and it's about the experience. I understand that imagery, the way I try and coach it and explain it is, don't worry about what you look like skating over the blue line with the puck. Just know that you're skating over the blue line with the puck and that repetition in your mind you don't have to score. You don't have to pass. Just know that you've done it before. So when you get there, you've actually done it. Yeah, the idea of being in the moment, yeah. the idea of playing present. Um, we use a phrase, be where your feet are, be where your skates are, um, and, and be able to observe and be aware. Yeah. Uh, and you, when you can start observing your thoughts rather than judging them, rather than evaluating them, but just observing them, all of a sudden those thoughts can't cripple you as much because you're just observing them. You understand that actions are your actions and thoughts. We all have crazy, weird thoughts. Nobody, nobody in this world has gotten away from crazy, stupid, weird, whatever you want to call them, thoughts. It's just our ability to observe them rather than empower them uh, that I think makes the difference. As an athlete, I don't want my guys ever to have their first experience doing something in a game. Mm. So we, we, we need to put them in a situation, whether it be you know, skating out to the blue line, because that's a, that's a nervous time. But it's also nervous because nobody really practices it. I don't want to say that we practice skating out to the blue line and stopping and doing the anthem. We did this year. We did it once. And it, it made our guys maybe just a little more comfortable. The Blue Angels, for those that don't know, they're the fighter pilots that fly in, in unison going 100 miles an hour. And they're flying within feet of each other and putting on air shows all over the country. Um, they, they will evaluate their walk out to the plane. Because they want to be so in sync with each other that they want to make sure that their walk is where it needs to be. And they'll evaluate it. And they'll then watch film and break down their film and critique it and make sure that they're so in sync. Um, and I think it's part of that. It's repetition, routine, and, and building that in. Now, you can get to a point where you can be obsessive-compulsive, and that can keep you away from performing in a creative sport like hockey where... Yes, they're going to have their spots on the ice, but there might be a time where they have to adjust or adapt or be malleable um, and have some creativity. It's different than a, a, a show um, where they're doing the same thing every time like the Blue Angels. But the idea of routine and, and repetition and, and that stuff is, is big, especially when you're going into a performance where you're going to be judged and you're going to be evaluated and there's all kinds of potential thoughts that can come into your mind. But the, but the beauty of those performances are that there's boundaries and each person when they're confident goes right to those boundaries and and as a coach if I give them 10 feet and they only use four of it they're not doing a good job they need to use all 10 feet with their with their skill and ability and use their creativity within that 10 feet okay so I just had this conversation with a professional coach in a different sport we had a conversation about playing simple and fundamental yeah. while also being creative. How do you toggle that as a coach? 
you want your guys to have that long leash to play with the 10 feet, but you don't want them to miss the simple pass um, and make the simple play. How do you toggle creativity and simplicity? Well, I think ultimately there's a result. So if it's a simple pass and they can't execute a simple pass, the result didn't allow the next guy to be creative. So we have a, we have a blueprint. We have a, a, a mission that we want to accomplish. Like, so for us, if we want to break out, all five guys have a role. It's going to be easier for one if two, three, and four are doing what they're supposed to do. One now, if they're all doing what they should do, has flexibility and freedom within his space. So my job is to create boundaries and let them do whatever they need to do and then look at the result. If what they felt was the right thing and it didn't work, we have a conversation about it. You can do whatever you want. The behind the back pass, the three for Steph Curry from, from half court. If he keeps taking that and keeps missing it, that's a bad shot. When he makes it, it's a good shot because he's got the ability in their blueprint to make that. And now you talk about accountability and communication and the ability to say, all right, what was going on here? And when do you choke that leash and when do you let it go? When do you, you say kick in the butt, when do you yeah. do a pat on the back, pat on the back? That's the art of coaching. It, it is the art. It's when do you do both because you need both. Um, but I do. I find that that toggling so tricky. I think that's the one of the hardest parts about coaching is you want teams to be fundamental. You want them to be selfless. You want them to uh, be part of something bigger than themselves. But you also don't want them to stifle their own imagination and their own creativity. Yeah. I, for me, our, our belief and our staff has been that you practice the fundamentals, but you also get in games what you practice. So we need to practice creativity. We need to give them a wrong-handed scrimmage where hockey is fun. We need to give them you know, whip pucks at their feet and make them catch them. We need to put them in a position that they have never experienced and watch what they do with it. Because when you give these guys the opportunity to do what they want, they can do some great things. Now, can they do what they want in my blueprint? That's the, the, the gift that we want them to apply. In that blueprint, do you have non-negotiables? Do you have things that you're not going to be successful here if you're not doing X, Y, and Z? I, I would like to tell you that there is non-negotiables, but I really don't think there is. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is anymore. Um, and I'm not a hard, hard strategy guy. Um, I'm a results guy. So if you find a way to get the puck in and get it back, that's what we want. If you need to carry it in, chip it in, um, we all have different skill sets. So the, the non-negotiables, I, I think there's a few unwritten non-negotiables. Don't skate the front of your own puck in front of your own net in traffic, but they know that. That's non-negotiable for them. Yeah, I would think of it more like, you know, pat, like passing, um, you know, uh, a non-negotiable would be jumping into the play versus coming back. Like none of that sort no. of creativity is the, what separates good from great, right? Because if if we all have our blueprints are all very similar, and I'm not sure what every other coach you talk to tells you, but our blueprints by sport are all very very similar. So if we can be a little more creative, a little faster within that blueprint, a little quicker, a little deceptive. Um, some guys have a gift that. They're just never allowed to play. So that's what separates, I think, good from great. Yeah, and I think when you get selfish with creativity, um, that's when it becomes problematic because a guy can make an amazing pass that's really creative and he's trying to get something for someone else or a guy can skate really fast you know, over the blue line and, and, and try to be really creative in the movements of his body, but it's to try to draw the defense to lay it off. I think... I think when you get into selfishness, that's when a lot of coaches run into problems. When a guy's trying to take on two defenders, when he had a simple play that he could have made for someone that they run into problems. To, to me, it's still results-driven. Right. I don't mind the selfish play if it works. I mean, you shouldn't make that pass, but it worked. You shouldn't make that pass. It didn't work, don't do it again. Oh, so is it a uh, don't do it again, or is it until you can show me you can do it again? Yeah, I think there's that balance. I mean, that's... that's uh, Who's trying it? What's your skill set? I've, I've seen you try it 15 times in practice. It never worked. Yeah. Um, but keep trying it in practice. Don't try it in a game yet. 
I want you to riff on this theory that I have, which is the mindset for preparation should be different than the mindset for performance. And when I talk about preparation, I don't mean preparing for a game. I mean preparation, practice, you know, doing some skill work on your own. Uh, I really believe we should be humble in preparation and confident in performing. I think we should be somewhat neurotic when we're preparing and somewhat narcissistic when we're performing. Um, I think... You know, we should ask why when we're preparing, but ask how when we're performing um, and, and trying to tease that out so that it's clear that we have sort of this growth mindset when we're preparing. But when I'm performing, I need to know who I am, what I do, and it needs to be very fixed. Um, what do you think about all that? That's a lot. That's, that's a lot. The, it um, might be a whole other podcast that we could dive into. That, that is a lot. And I can go over my list. I got like 25 of those. For, for me... I want consistency of environment and consistency of, of thought and feeling. So when you come to the rink for practice, um, we, we practiced at 12 o'clock, uh, you know, what's your routine? What's your habit? What's your feeling? And, and that's the same for, as a coach. I need to say hello to the players when they come in. And game, I shouldn't walk in with a stern look on my face. They need to love what they're doing, and, and that's a process. And... Uh, that process is what leads to excellence. So when you go on the ice, if you're relaxed and loose in practice, you're probably going to be relaxed and loose in a game. But same thing if you're tight. So I, I want you to practice the way you'd like to play and uh, with, with respect for your teammates. Because if you have a hard-charging guy, he can't be out there injuring his guys. So work on your skills. But your skills done at game speed in practice will happen in a game. So let's make the environment comfortable and confident 24-7. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think one of the mistakes that most people make is they use their preparation mindset more than their performance mindset. So they're somewhat perfectionist, they're neurotic, they want things to be exactly the way they want, um, and they don't practice their performance mindset. I think the guys that are in pro sports um, shift. And, and to me, that would be a minor criticism of, of college sports, that you prepare so much for less performance, and you get to pro, and it actually flips with the number of games. So I, I believe when you get to pro, you learn to flip that switch a lot closer to game time, and the, the, the late bus, the late plane, the bad meal have less of an impact on your outcome. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic um, that I'm still teasing out. So uh, we'll talk about that more. I paused you when you said, I went to Detroit. Um, that's where we left off in your journey. So I'm going to go back because we just got into Coach Speak, which is more fun in my opinion. I love your journey. I love your story. But uh, we could talk this stuff all day because I think yeah. that's where our passions are probably aligning. Um, but you're in Detroit uh, and take me from there. Yeah, IHL Detroit Vipers. Um, legendary Rick Dudley was uh, was the coach. Steve Ludzig, a great coach, was his assistant. Um, it was the closest we've ever been to to my wife's family. We we're about an hour and a half away, and it was a great uh, great situation. Great support. Played at the Palace of Auburn Hills. Loved everything about it, and got traded in, in November. What was Rick Dudley like as a coach? Oh, high detail, high detail, uh, super intense. Um, I mean, I would go home and I always kept a book on the coaches I played for and played against. And I have wait, wait, time out. You did that when? Oh, I've always done that. I mean, from from college all the way through, even in junior, I did. I I just thought I should write things down. And you knew you wanted to be a coach. I didn't always know. I just thought I should write down what I liked and uh, good drills. And I didn't know I wanted to coach. I just like it was just something I did. You have no idea why. Not why it started. No. Well, I would imagine you have like a Bible of the best that you experienced from a coaching standpoint. Actually, the more neat thing for me is I ran into a guy, uh, Jim Hiller, who, who's an assistant coach at the Toronto Maple Leafs. We played in Binghamton together, and he had been doing the same thing. Wow. But he had played for some, he played for Scotty Bowman, he played for some legendary guys, so we, we swapped notes. So. Oh, awesome. Yeah, really neat. Well, I just think it's such a cool thing. You're capturing your experience and you're learning because you have to actually pay enough attention to be able to write it in the book. And then you're capturing it. There's a cool study done, uh, whether it's um, been proven to be 
uh, you know, studies, they come, they go, they change, but they found that when you write down your goals, you're 10 times more likely to actually make them happen. Yeah. Um, so I think you value writing it down. That's the second time you've talked about writing things down. Uh, the first one you talked about, the visualization didn't really work for you, but you could write down what yeah. you look like when you're at your best. Um, so there's something for you about writing. Uh, but that's pretty interesting that you didn't realize at the time that you want to be a coach, but you were learning from all these coaches and capturing that information. Um, yeah. It was just things I liked, things I didn't like, things I said, I wish they wouldn't have done, done that. Um, I, I don't know that I ever wrote down, I wish they'd do that again. But, but here's why I think it's so valuable is because our memories are lie. We lie. Uh, we lie about our past. We don't have a good, the human brain. Doesn't that just devalue everything I've told you? None no, of it might be true there. You were just, you were completely <laughs> honest all the time. But no, I think we tell a story that often is not completely accurate. Um, we just aren't really good at recalling exactly what happened. That's why I think a lot of people have the com comments about kids these days and generations and this and blah, blah, because they don't remember what they were like when they were that age, uh, or they changed the story. And there's been research that shows that, that we change what the story was. So I think writing it down is just, it's fascinating. Now I'm going to ask you to, to tell the rest of your story. Um, so you're in Detroit, you get exposed to high-level coaching, and um, but then you're gone, I think you said, by, no, by yeah, November. Yeah, I got traded, uh, and I'd had some great coaches even previous to that. Claude Noel, who coached in the NHL, Bruce Boudreaux, uh, who coached in this city for a long time. Um, Al Hill was my coach in, in, in Binghamton. So I get to Rick Dudley, I get traded out to, to LA, as far away as, from as possible. And I ended up getting traded three times in pro. That day we cried for three days, I think, my wife and I. And um, we, uh, we move out to LA and just keep playing. Again, that's, that's the journey. And that's, uh, we were in LA, the, the team moved to Long Beach. There are parts of two seasons get traded to Orlando, cross country again. And, uh, you know, re-sign in Orlando, go on a nice run there, and then get traded to San Antonio. So eventually it, it became, um, it became more of a passion to get into coaching than it was to keep pursuing the dream of the NHL. I knew that I could play against guys that were in the NHL. I knew that I could, if given an opportunity, have a cup of coffee there. Um, and it became less important to do that and more important uh, at two young children at the time and uh, more important to, to maybe pursue a coaching career. When did coaching come into focus for you? Uh, I started running some camps and clinics. I, I've been working hockey camps since the time I've been 17. Um, in, in Guelph, there's a camp called Can-Am, which is a legendary hockey camp. Uh, in my opinion, it was the best in the world. And uh, I, I found a way to become a coach real early there and, and enjoyed it and saw former players come back and enjoyed the camaraderie that the coaches had. I remember that very vividly, sitting with a guy, John Cristiano, who's a longtime scout with the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, I talked with him on a kitchen a picnic table outside the dorm room at the University of Guelph. I think it was 18 or 19. He was still at Ohio State. And uh, I remember those conversations. So I think... Without knowing it, I was gravitating towards coaching. Um, the opportunity came up for me late in the summer. I was assigned to go back and play in Fort Wayne, and uh, Bob Motzko, the world junior head coach for the U.S., coached at St. Cloud now. He left Miami of Ohio. So that opportunity came up. But I was doing things at that time, camps, clinics. I went to the American Hockey Coaches Association convention. Um, I knew that it was on the horizon, something I wanted to do. And just, again, the, the burner just kept getting hot. So walk me through your coaching career. If I can do it fairly quickly, I went uh, two years at Miami of Ohio, two years at Bowling Green, uh, three years at Mercyhurst, where, again, I had a coach that was a different style, Rick Gottkin. Uh, just so these of, are all your assistant coach? Yeah, assistant coach of those two, two coaches. So Mark Mazzolini and Enrico Blasi at Miami, uh, Buddy Powers for two years at uh, Bowling Green, Rick Gottkin for three years at Mercyhurst. Um, at that time, I had been really aggressively pursuing head coaching jobs and just couldn't get over the hump and was really getting frustrated. I went to Mercyhurst um, as, a, as a family. Uh, we had to pick the job the day before kindergarten started so our, my oldest daughter, Ellis, could get into kindergarten. And I stopped looking for jobs. I said, let's just enjoy it. It's similar to my experience at Ohio State where I've been trying so hard to get somewhere. When I backed off, I actually got the head coaching job three years later. We'd been to the national tournament twice, got the head job at Canisius, was there for 12 years, 
and uh, just recently took the head job at, uh, at RPI, which, which has great history and tradition. Why do you think that is that when we stop gripping the stick so tight that it, it becomes easier? I think we become more about who we really are. I mean, for, for me, you try to prove yourself, prove yourself, and show I can do this. Look at me, uh, you know, not only keeping up with the Joneses, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you there. And I think it's uh, uh, just the rat race that we get caught up in. And, and it is important because you do, with that mentality, I think often better yourself. Um, but when you can take a step back and live in that moment, I think we're better for it. It's such a push-pull, right? Like, you need to have that fire. You need to have that whatever-it-takes mind. And that's where I come back to that mindset for preparation, mindset for performance, because it's like, in some ways, I need to fear failure when I'm preparing. Like, I need to... I'm going to do this whatever it means, by any means necessary, but then when I step on the ice, I want you to be fearless. Um, And, like, so people say don't fear failure, but, like... I don't know. I think I think if you don't fear failure, here's how I look at it. If I don't have a, a little bit of a fear of failure, maybe I'm going to drink and drive. Maybe I'm going to cheat on my wife. Maybe I'm going because I there's no fear of it failing. Um, I don't respect it enough. Maybe, um, but when I'm performing, I need to be just you know what. I'm going to let it all hang out and I'm just going to be myself, which is I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be almost like naked and this is me and I'm going to trust my instincts that I'm going to know what to do and I'm going to know how to handle it. I think society and and we all value the person that really appears to have it all together. And as we get older, we, we see that behind the curtain of each individual, there's a lot of scars and there's a lot of work that went into it but the public perception is that man that guy has it all together and and i i would say that as i have allowed myself to become more vulnerable and i know there's it's such a key word as i have become more vulnerable i've become a better coach i've become a better person because i'm going to be me and uh, that me we learn to get comfortable with Let's end with that because I think that's a beautiful way to end. Uh, Dave, we just met. Uh, I feel like I know you. I feel like I've known you for like 20 years now. Um, But I really appreciate your vulnerability and willingness to share with a stranger. Um, You've got a terrific story and I know we only cracked a few layers and I'm sure there's more layers to it. Um, So I appreciate you coming on. Um, If anyone wants to follow the hockey team this year, uh, you made a move. Uh, You're with the new, new squad. Uh, where can they f- find out how you guys are doing? I don't know if you're a social media guy. If they I can, am. They... I am. I am. Uh, RPI Athletics uh, or RPI.edu um, is our is our website. I'm on Twitter at uh, RPI underscore hockey with no O underscore coach, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you look up RPI, you'll find it. And I also know, and I'll end with this, uh, after, after sharing a story about my hometown, if you get there, and you mentioned that we talked about it and you know enough about it now, you'll be okay. They'll take care of you. I'll there. get a couple of beers at the at the local at, tavern. At the Queen's Hotel, they'll take care of you, Brian. Well, I went to school at Syracuse, uh, which snowed every day. Um, so I can imagine what the weather's like two and a half hours north of, of T-Dot, as the kids You've call it these days. You've got some friends there. Yeah, but I, I will take you up on that offer. And I uh, appreciate you giving your time. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. All right, thanks.